Good morning. I don't know if you noticed in the uh, singing this morning, the songs were related to Jesus the King. And uh, first, first one, thank you, Michael, for uh, choosing those for us. The first one being um, about the king, this one being that, uh, I love the phrasing here, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And so it's very appropriate for uh, the study that we're beginning this morning, and that is in the book of Matthew. So let's open our Bibles, and we're going to begin the very first week of our study in the Gospel of Matthew. This is July 21st, 2019, and we plan to study, we have a study plan mapped out until April 2022 uh, in the book of April. So the Bible says the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And so we've made these plans, and in the will of the Lord, we will accomplish these plans, but better still, if the king would come and take us home to be with him, and we could bow prostrate at his feet. That's, that's really our ultimate goal, our ultimate desire. So as we begin the study in, in Matthew, we want to try to put it in perspective in, um, in the rest of the Bible. And so I'm going to test your Bible knowledge a little bit. I'm going to ask you questions. And this should be basic uh, Bible study 101. The Bible is actually not one book. It is a library of how many books? 66. Okay, so everybody who said 66 gets one point for that one. All right. The Old Testament, we'll test you a little further. How many books in the Old Testament? 39, yeah. And the New Testament, therefore, is, if you're mathematically inclined, it's 27, yeah. So you're good for that. Um, A couple of things to note, you may or may not know. The Old Testament was written primarily in the Hebrew language. The New Testament was written predominantly in the Greek language. Now, here's a a further test. Let's let's go down a little deeper here. Um, The Old Testament is sometimes broken into three parts. Does anybody know what the three parts of the Old Testament are? Okay, history and prophecy. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't hear. Sorry. The law. Okay, so the law is uh, sometimes called the law of Moses, and it's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, the next section is sometimes called history, um, and uh, sometimes it's um, part of um, what is considered the prophets. So sometimes the historical section is linked together with the prophetic section of the Bible and called the prophets. And then you have in the kind of the middle of the Old Testament uh, poetry, which would include Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those books. So those are the three main parts. And sometimes in the New Testament, it's referred to, uh, you know, they have the law and the prophets or, you know, something along those lines. All right. In uh, the New Testament, interestingly enough, there are also three main parts. A little trickier. Anybody know what the 
three main parts. And some might say there's four. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, the Gospels. How many are there? Four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right? What's, so that's one part of the New Testament. What's the next part? Yep. Okay, so the Acts of the Apostles. So it's, it's the book of the church being formed and growing and the Acts of the Apostles, those, uh, the early century of the church. Okay, what's the third section? Yeah, the epistles or letters. Uh, epistles just means letters. And so we have um, Pauline epistles, which simply means letters written by Paul and, and so on. So there's one other section that sometimes people say is another complete section, and I kind of think it is. Um, what would that be? Revelation, yeah. And it's really a book devoted to a prophetic view of the end times and the Lord Jesus Christ finally reigning uh, supreme. Okay. Um, the unique thing about the Old Testament is that the entire Old Testament points to one person. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to one who is coming who will be the deliverer who will be the Savior, who will forgive sins, one who will be the King, one who will be the Messiah. And the one that, that is referred to in all of that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one. Um, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, it says this, Then he said, Jesus is speaking, He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And so the Lord Jesus is saying to his disciples, the entire Old Testament, all three parts of the Old Testament, and in its entirety is pointing to me. And then to the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25, it says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The only scriptures they had at that time was the Old Testament. And so he's saying, all of the scriptures point to me. And so that's, that's good. In your study of the Bible, it's important to remember that, that as you study through the Old Testament, look for Christ in all of the Old Testament passages. He's there, whether in prophecy or whether in poetry, um, and he's there. All right. So... <clears throat> The New Testament begins with the four Gospels, as we mentioned, and the four Gospels give us the evidence that Jesus Christ is the only person who satisfies all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Savior, and that he is the only one who could possibly be the Savior of the world. And so... <clears throat> It's important, um, th this is one of the reasons I, I enjoy the study of um, on the, Stranger on the Road to Emmaus, because it looks at the Old Testament first, lays a foundation through the Old Testament, pointing forward to 
the fulfillment of these prophecies and everything that is said in the Old Testament, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the time you get to the New Testament, there's only one Savior. There can't be another. And so um, I, I really love that approach to the scriptures and um, why I promote it so much. Um, so it's important to note, too, that there are similarities and there are differences in each of the four Gospels. I like to kind of think of it this way. I'm not saying that this is an accident. But if you were standing on a, on a street corner in a, uh, in a four-way stop, and Noad was over here, and Sharon was over here, and Howard was over here, and Kathy was over here, and they're all looking at the center of the intersection. And as they're looking at the intersection, two cars collide. Do you think their stories are going to be identical in every aspect? Why do you say no? Yeah, you see things differently. So one of you, one of the four, might see the driver of the car that hit the other car. One of you might see the car that was hit, you know, and so on. And so there's, a, there's different perspectives. The basic information of the story of the accident should be the same. But some of the details may be slightly different from person to person based on what uh, their viewpoints or, or what they are trying to get across. And so we have this, a similar situation with the Gospels. It's interesting that as men and women have studied the, uh, the Gospels, they've seen patterns in each of the Gospels that are slightly different than, than each other. So let me point out a couple. Most of you probably know this already. In the Gospel of Matthew, so as I mentioned earlier, we sang some songs concerning Jesus as what? King. Okay, that is the emphasis of the entire Gospel of Matthew. And so you have, today we're going to be looking uh, for a few minutes at the uh, genealogy and if a person is going to claim the right to sit on the throne of a kingdom, he better fit in the right genealogy. And so that's why it starts with that in the book of Matthew. Uh, as we go through the book of Matthew, it, it's very interesting. You'll see a pattern repeat itself where you have the teachings of the king followed by the actions of the king, followed by the teachings of the king, followed by the actions of the king, and so on. And it keeps going like that. And then towards the end, you have a wonderful section of prophecy concerning his kingdom, which is still to come. And so that's just kind of an overview, quick summary of it. But basically, Matthew's view of Jesus is as the king. Mark's view of Jesus is as what? Anybody know? Servant. Servant. Yeah. And one of the interesting phrases that you see in the Gospel of Mark is immediately, 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 immediately. And you go, okay, I get it. But the idea is that when a servant is told to do something, they don't say, whatever, I'll get to it when I feel like it, right? They do it immediately. That's their job. And so we see Jesus as the servant of his father, and whatever his father asks him to do, he does it, and he does it immediately. In um, Luke, we have a view of Jesus as what? Son of man. Son of man, yeah. And so we see the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully human. And we see that 
emphasized probably more in Luke than in any other gospel. And then when we get to John, we see him as the Son of God, or his deity is very, very clearly portrayed in the gospel of John. So the Bible says this, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. God set that principle in place in the Old Testament and again in the New Testament. And he says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. But the Lord himself has given us not two, not three, but four witnesses uh, about him and about his life. Another thing I like to, to note as we study through the Bible is that uh, if, you, if you pay attention to what God, um, like, like the content or the uh, instruction in the scripture, you'll see that there are 39 books in the Old Testament and all 39 books in some way or other point to the Savior. And so it's like this great big, the Bible is like a great big arrow. Okay, And the fattest part of the arrow pointing to Christ, I mean, the, the, the long stem of it is 39 books long, and it all points to him. When you get to the Gospels, there are um, four books revealing who the Savior is. So the Old Testament points to the Savior. The four Gospels tell us who the Savior is. And in the four Gospels, there are 89 chapters, if I counted correctly. And um, only four chapters of those 89 are devoted to the first 30 years of his life. Not much. And it's almost like, okay, let me tell you some basic information about the Savior, but this isn't the most important part of the story. We have to deal with it, you know, genealogy and all that kind of stuff. But that is not the most important part. So four chapters out of 89, 30 years of his life. Uh, the, the rest of the 85 chapters are devoted to his life in ministry. And we speed through the next three years of his life, and then all four Gospels slow, to, uh, slow down to a crawl when they get to the last 10 days or one week of his life. And it's almost like the Lord is saying, you know, 39 chapters, you know, uh, 4,000 years have passed. The four Gospels, 30 years, you know, it's, a, it's just a, a snap of the finger, right? And then you get to the last week of his life, and the whole Bible, the whole, uh, all, all four Gospels just slow way, way down. It's like, okay, everybody, if you're listening at this point, this is the one we're talking about, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most important event in all of history. Jesus going to the cross to save mankind from our sins and to suffer and to bleed and to die for us. And then we see it slow down even more in the last day of his life and even more in the last hours of his life. It just is remarkable if you pay attention to this. The Lord is clearly emphasizing something to us. Pay attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done uh, for you. And it's really a dramatic literary device that God is showing us the most important event that has ever taken place in history, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The cross 
is the central theme of all four Gospels. The Christ is the central person of all four Gospels. And the wonderful thing is, this is God's love story to you and to me, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is his love story to you. Pay attention to it. It's a letter that was written in blood. And so as we embark in our study in Matthew, we begin at the beginning. If Christ is the central person in this book, who is he? Is he really the promised Messiah? Is he really the deliverer? Is he really the savior? Is he really the promised king? Are all of the promises going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ? And we're going to see, of course, that they, that they are. But it's an interesting, uh, an interesting story. Matthew, just kind of as an aside, Matthew's an interesting book as well. Um, if you read through it, I've often said if you give Matthew to a person to read as their first book, they know nothing about the Bible, and you give Matthew to them as, as a book to read, it's awkward. And the reason it's awkward is because it'll say... Um, such and such, thus fulfilling the scripture. And you go, what scripture? <laughs> and so you have to go back and look at the Old Testament scripture, and such and such happened, thus fulfilling another scripture, and you have to go back to that scripture, and you're going back and forth between the Old Testament and the New. It's, it's important because Matthew is written primarily to the, a Jewish audience, and they want that kind of proof that, he, that th these Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled in the, Lord, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course they are. So, enough said about all that. Um, Matthew chapter 1. Well, before we do that, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. Um, how many of you have ever kind of dug around a little bit in your family history, done any kind of genealogical uh, study? Okay, a few of you have, right? Uh, it, it can be completely time-consuming. <laughs> I will tell you, if you get started on it and you really enjoy it, it can be absolutely um, time-consuming. My, uh, my dad <clears throat> was um, born in the United States in a little town in Washington State. And um, his, he stayed there until he was about one, one and a half, and then his family moved back up to Canada. And uh, shortly after getting back to Canada, my dad's mom, uh, who was a nurse, she took a job in a, a hospital. And within a few months, she passed away. And uh, she passed away before he was two years old. So my dad actually knows nothing about his mom, has no memory of his mother whatsoever. And um, he, he remembers things that were told to him about her, but he really doesn't have any clear memory of his mother. And so if I ask him questions about his mom, he just kind of sighs and says, I know nothing, you know? And so <clears throat> my uh, mom had started a, a little bit of research into the family history, and she was focusing more on her dad's side of the family tree. And most often when people do a uh, family tree, they follow the male line of the tree. That's typical, and it's, it was true in the Old Testament, and it's certainly true today. Not completely, a lot of people do both sides, but, but that is kind of the focus. They wanna know where the bloodline was. How did we come here? How did I get here? And all of that. And so there was quite a bit of information done about my dad's side of the family and her dad's side of the family. We could go back 
maybe a couple of centuries. But there was nothing about my dad's mom. So I, I, I got a bunch of stuff when I was up there in Canada um, last year, and I took these boxes down here with me, and I started sorting through it, and I found some stuff about his mom. And so I started doing some research online. And so now I'm following not the male bloodline. I'm following this unknown person, uh, my dad's mom. And she was kind of a mystery woman. It was very difficult for me to figure out where she came from. And, and uh, there were like missing links all over the place. And I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find anything for him. For him. But as I, as I studied and as I looked into it more and more, I began to find particular links, and then all of a sudden, I hit one link, and the thing went This computer program I was using just went all the way back to about 500 AD. I said, oh, wow. <laughs> this is incredible. And so I, I found that this mystery woman actually is in a direct bloodline of people who came over on the Mayflower, direct bloodline of multiple um, U.S. presidents, and even has royalty in her blood. And so I called Dad you know, in a hurry, and I'm telling him about all this stuff, and he's excited. He says, I never knew any of this stuff, and none of us did. And it was just kind of a fascinating tale. But it, it, this mystery woman has actually more information on her, once we got the proper links, than we have found for anybody else in the family on either side, bloodline or not. And it, it's just been quite a fascinating tale. So I tell you all of that uh, just because I have found genealogies uh, kind of fascinating, but terribly time consuming. So I've kind of given it up for a while. Um, verse one starts the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it shows that he is in the line of Abraham and of the line of David. Through Abraham, Jesus is placed in the nation of Israel, and through David, he is seated on the throne. Jesus was born king. But you need a genealogy to prove that, and that's what Matthew is proving at the beginning of his gospel, that Jesus Christ has the legal right to claim the throne of David. So in Matthew's gospel, so there are two genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament. One is in Matthew, one is in Luke. In Matthew's gospel, we have the genealogy as we follow it through Joseph's line. But as you remember, Joseph was not his natural father. He was his adopted father. And so the legal line came through that adoption. He, came, he became um, legally, it was his right to the throne through Joseph side. There's another interesting thing in that is that as a result of Joseph not being his uh, natural father, he actually bypasses a uh, blood relative who is Jeconiah, who was cursed and that no, no uh, one of his uh, descendants should ever sit on the throne. He is, then we have in Luke the genealogy of Jesus on Mary's side, where he is the actual seed of David through Mary, making him a direct lineal descendant. He is the king, and since he still lives, there can be no other claim to the throne, because Jesus is king. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son 
of Abraham. Do you think that uh, Matthew got mixed up and thought that Abraham came after David? I, I don't think so. I think he's making a point. The point of his gospel is that Jesus is king. And so that would be more closely related to David than it would be to Abraham. Um, <clears throat> God made a covenant with David that he would give him a son who would sit on his throne and that his descendant would be, that his, his descendant would sit on the throne perpetually or forever. And if Jesus fulfills that promise, then he has to be the son of David. So in, if you want to look up uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12, we see uh, part of this uh, prophecy. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, it says this, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed. He's talking to David. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So initially this would, of course, apply to Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, and this is kind of the key here, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And then in Psalm 89, David's Psalm, four, three times in that Psalm, verse 4, verse 26, and verse 37, uh, David speaks of this, about the forever nature of his kingdom. David's descendant would establish his throne forever, and he would reign on David's throne forever. There has been no king like that, but it is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, whoever this promised king is, obviously he has to be in David's line, and then this is why Matthew brings it up here, Jesus is the son of David. Secondly, he must be Abraham's son. Why? Well, God made a covenant with Abraham. And he says this in Genesis 22:18, "In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." And Paul tells us in case we don't know who this seed is, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 that Abraham's seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he if you put those two passages together, we can say this, that in the Lord Jesus Christ all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And it is through Christ that all the nations are blessed, Jews and Gentiles, and salvation with salvation and every spiritual blessing. But in order for Jesus to fulfill that promise, he had to be the son of Abraham. And in fact, he is. Well, studying, the, uh, studying genealogies, and I will admit this, they can be quite boring, um, if all you have is dates and of births and dates of deaths and children and all you've got is names, it can be quite tedious to, to do that. What I find fascinating in um, genealogical study is to find a person and all of a sudden there, there's this, this huge uh, trove of information that comes up about this person. So I have, for example, uh, a couple of relatives who served in the military. And... Um, 
So I thought, well, it's interesting. Let me search out these people a little bit more. And I go to a military site, and all of a sudden I get everything that's possibly printed about these people from where they were, when they were sick, what medicines they used. For. I mean, it's incredible the amount of information. And it makes their story all the more interesting. So the more information you have about somebody, uh, the more interesting the genealogy will be. If, if all you have is a birth date and a birth death date, you kind of go, whatever. They lived, they died. Move on, right? It's tough to have to leave your relatives like that. Um, sometimes in researching the family tree, I come across people that uh, really, I think, wow, I am really blessed to be part of that line. You know, that these people lived and they were so wonderful and blah, blah, blah. You know, I think, that's really neat that I'm part of that. And so I study further and I go, oh, and their son was a crook. <laughs> this guy was totally corrupt. You know, Adolf Hitler is my what? <laughs> you know, um, I'm related to Osama bin Laden. How can this be? You know, I mean, there are certain people you don't want in your family tree. You go, I... I can I please distance myself from them? Can I cut them out of the family tree? I don't want a black sheep in my family. I just want good people, right? But I can actually, and I've said this to people before, I can actually trace your family tree further back than I ever thought possible. When I started, I, I, was, I was so happy to get maybe 100 years back. I go, wow, I've got like three generations here. This is great. And then I found some, like I said, that went back even further. But I can actually trace each one of your uh, lines about 6,000 years, all the way to the biggest black sheep in the family. And unfortunately, we started with a black sheep, and his name was Adam. And the Bible tells us that uh, we are related to him. He is our father, and when he acted in the garden, he acted as us. Why? Because we were in Adam. The Bible says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so this is really the, the black mark against each one of us, that we were born sinners. We were born into the family of Adam, and we take on his traits as sinners. You're born into a family of sinners, and you are one too. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus one night, you must be born again. If you stay in your family, and that's all there is to it, you stay in Adam's family, you're going to die, you're going to go to hell, and you're going to suffer eternally in the lake of fire. That's the only thing that, if you stay in that family, that's what's going to happen. That's the consequence of being born into that family. That's your heritage. That's what you inherit from uh, your father, Adam. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, you can't climb back into your mother's womb, and you can't start over. And uh, to be born again means that you must be born into another family, and that family is the family of God. The Lord Jesus said, as many as received him, that is Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so we are transferred out of one family, and we are transferred into another. We are adopted into his family, and we are true adult uh, sons with all the blessings that, that he offers to us, and that is every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Now, I know that you descended from Adam, but the question is, have you also been born again? Are you in the family of God? Okay, so we have a lot of names in front of us here in this section, verses 2 through 16, and I am not going to read every single one of them. Instead, I thought I would do what I like to do best in, in studying genealogies and just pick some names and look at them. And so I've chosen four people uh, from this list. I'll read verse, uh, the first six verses. It says, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And so there you have the 12 tribes of uh, Israel, essentially. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And so she's the first one that I want to consider. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot uh, Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon. And often when I go through names in, uh, in, in my family tree, I go, why on earth would you name your children these names? <laughs> you know? And I look at some of these names too, but they have a meaning. And so, you know, I don't want to criticize their names. Uh, anyway, Salmon. Uh, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. She's number two. I want to look at, at Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. I want to look at Ruth as well. And Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And so I want to look at the fourth one, uh, her who had been the wife of Uriah. And we know that that her is uh, Bathsheba. It is quite unusual to mention women in uh, Bible genealogy or Middle Eastern family trees for that matter. And as I mentioned earlier, even in family trees that you research, you'll find that, that most follow the, the, the bloodline through the male. That is typical. Um, but as I said, in my father's case, it is his mother that provides us with a bloodline that touches king, or, yeah, even kings. Um, and uh, so here it is. These four women stand out among the names. It's unusual to see female names in a genealogy, but here we have four. And as a matter of fact, there's a fifth we'll look at later, but there's four here that we want to look at uh, today. And so let's start with uh, Tamar. Tamar, <clears throat> the story is found in Genesis 38. We're not going to go there to read it. Um, there is some discussion among Bible students as to whether she was Jewish or she was Gentile. I believe that she was a Gentile. Um, I may be wrong, but I, I'm going to stick with it for now. Um, if you remember the story, uh, she was um, married to Judas' son, and he died, and then the next one died, and there was a third one that was supposed to marry her, and they just never let it happen. And so she put on a garment, dressed like a harlot, covered her face so nobody could recognize her, and went out to the market waiting for Judah to pass by. And Judah basically uh, bought her uh, for sexual uh, purposes, and she became pregnant and had twins. And so we see that uh, Tamar is actually listed in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. 
Would you want Tamar in your genealogy? And here she is. Of course, you have to ask the same question about Judah <laughs> because he committed the act. And so I would ask the same question. But for now, I'm just going to stick with the ladies, um, not because I think their sin is worse than his sin. I think his sin was the worst because he's the one who proposed this to her. Um, so she sold herself as a harlot to Judah, resulting in the pregnancy of twins, Perez the oldest, and it is Perez who is included in the line of the Messiah. And the only thing that qualifies Tamar from being part of the line of Jesus is that she's a sinner. That's it. She's a sinner. And that's how she entered into the line of the Messiah. Tamar sinned. And we did too. And the only thing that qualifies you and that qualifies me to be a child of God or to be in the lineage of Jesus, shall we say, is that you are a sinner. Only sinners are eligible to become children of God. If you're not a sinner, you're not eligible. But if you are a sinner, you're eligible to be born again and to be brought into the family of God. And so we actually stand on the same ground as Tamar, as sinners. The next is Rahab. Most often, when we hear the name Rahab, and when her name is spoken in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, she is known as Rahab the harlot. Okay? Rahab the harlot. Can you imagine if your sin was as prominent as her sin in your name? That every time we mention your name, it would be um, Frank the liar, Joe the adulterer, Sally the blasphemer, Rahab the harlot. We don't do that, but with her, almost every time, not every time, but almost every time, she is known as Rahab the harlot. Rahab was not only a sinner, but she was actually living in a city and among people who were under condemnation and just waiting for judgment. She lived in Jericho. And that was the city that was set apart as the first city of destruction as the children of Israel came in and marched into uh, the promised land and they were to, to bring uh, Jericho to destruction. And she knew it and they knew it. They knew what God had told the, the Jewish people. Rahab was also a Gentile. She was a native of Jericho. Not only was Rahab saved from certain death, she was saved from eternal death. How was she saved? Well, Hebrews 11.31 says this, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe, which means that she did believe when she had received the spies with peace. So Rahab believed the truth of God's salvation when everyone else around her did not. Rahab would have been an unknown statistic except for her faith in God. And because she had faith in God, God not only saved her, but she is among those women who are part of the lineage 
of Jesus. Again, if we point out kind of the obvious, what determines whether you are in the family of God or not is whether you have faith in Jesus Christ uh, to save you. And like Rahab, the former harlot, I'll call her, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Frank the liar and Joe the um, adulterer and Sally the blasphemer, those sins have been paid for in full at the cross. And the wonderful thing, I, I don't know if you remember Debbie um, Hall, um, years ago she uh, professed faith in Christ. She was, she was dying with AIDS and she came over to my house one day and she says, I'm troubled about my sin. Obviously, you know what my sin is. I'm dying of AIDS. And she said, I'm troubled about my sin. And I talked to her. I said, well, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? She said, oh, yes, I have. She says, I am believing that he is the only means of my salvation and that he has paid for my sins in full. I said, well, then let me tell you what he has done. I said, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. I said, how far is the east from the west? And she looked at me, what a peculiar question. I said, how far is east from west? She says, I don't know, 20 miles? <laughs> I said, okay, let me draw it out on a line. And I said, so that's east actually. I said, east, and it has an arrow on it. When does east end? And she says, well, it doesn't. And I said, when does west end? And she says, well, it doesn't. I said, right. So as far as the east, which never ends, is from the west, which never ends, I said, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. And that is the truth that I believe uh, Rahab understood, that God would save her, not just deliver her from destruction in the city, but would save her eternally. And that's what Debbie came to understand as well. And we enjoy the freedom from wrath and freedom from eternal destruction. We have passed from death to life. We are in the family of God. By the way, did you know that uh, Rahab, just kind of a, an aside, was the mother of Boaz? So Boaz is that wonderful figure in uh, the book of Ruth, and his mother was a harlot, a former harlot, a forgiven harlot, one who had uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful uh, story all by itself, and we can go explore that for quite a while, because you see the character of this man, Boaz. He must have been raised by a pretty wonderful woman. Boaz, the one that married Ruth, and of course that brings us to our next character. Ruth was probably the most obvious one who was a Gentile, because it says in the scripture, she was from Moab. And if you remember the scripture that there were certain uh, people from certain countries that were basically excluded from the worship of God, well, Moab was one of them, and she was a Moabite. And um, <clears throat> she was, at the time of the, the beginning of the story, we see that she was already married to a uh, son of um, um, Naomi. And you know the story, we've gone over it before. Uh, her husband dies, and so does her father-in-law, and so does the brother-in-law. And so you have these three women left um, that are now widows. And uh, she has lost her husband, and she has lost, in a sense, the family tree. 
it ends right there because there, there were no children. And so basically, this one of the saddest things, I think, sometimes when I, when I look at genealogies and I go, wow, there's nothing further beyond this person. That's it. The, the line ended here. You know, you look back for the beginning of the line, but there's many lines that just, they end. That's it. And that's the case with, uh, with uh, Ruth um, until her husband died. And then finally, uh, in a far country, they hear that there's food once again in Bethlehem. And that story, uh, when you hear the word Bethlehem, you think, oh, that's the birthplace of Christ. And of course it is. And they have to come to Bethlehem because they have to, she has to be married to Boaz and Boaz has to have uh, children and, and they have to have, continue the line of Jesus. But right now they're not in the right place. And uh, so the Lord does a marvelous thing. He provides food for the people of Israel once again. And Naomi finally comes to her senses and she says, you know what? I've been in a far country long enough. It's time to go back home. Well, Wana Orpa, uh, who often is called Oprah, <laughs> says, I'm not going. I want nothing to do with this. And she goes and leaves uh, the two of them. And then Naomi turns to Ruth and she says, will you go also? Go away. You know, go back to your people. I mean, I, I've got nothing for you. I went out full. I'm coming back empty. She comes back to Bethlehem and she says, she's kind of a, got a, she, well, she's gone through some bitter times, and she's still very bitter when she comes back to um, Bethlehem. And she says, don't call me Naomi Pleasant. Call me Mara Bitter. I'm going to be a grumbler, and I'm going to be a complainer, because I have nothing good in my life. And she doesn't realize that at that moment in her life, God is about to do the most wonderful thing that she could even imagine. And she's going to place uh, Ruth in the line of the Messiah, and she's going to become a part of that whole story. And you see as Naomi, you know, grows up a little bit through all of this and finally comes around and she's a little more pleasant at the end than she was at the beginning. Anyway, go back to Ruth. So Naomi says to Ruth, will you go back to your family as well? And Ruth says one of the most wonderful things in the Old Testament scriptures. She says this to her, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And more importantly, she says, and your God, my God. And so really, it's, it's a demonstration there. She may have already had faith in the Lord, but she's at least stating it publicly. Your God is my God. And she's saying, I have faith in the God of Israel. I have faith in him uh, in, in every way. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. Christa actually quoted this uh, verse, these verses to me in our marriage vows, and I don't think she realized quite when she was saying, wherever you lodge, I will lodge, just, just what was gonna come. But it's a wonderful statement of um, commitment and, and faith and trust in, in God and, and a commitment to um, this, uh, her mother-in-law here too. Ruth, as we know, ultimately became the wife of Boaz, and she is actually the great-grandmother of David, the king. And so another Gentile is in the line 
um, of David and in the line of Christ. Here she came into the family <coughs> through a kinsman redeemer, one who bought her essentially and bought her property and redeemed her and redeemed her property and took her to himself as his bride. And what a wonderful story. This is one of the greatest love stories in all of the Bible, um, apart from God's love for us. But it's really a reflection. That story is a reflection of God's love for us because we came to know our kinsman redeemer, the one who bought us, not with you know, a price of gold and silver, but rather with his own precious blood. And it was through Jesus Christ that we were redeemed back to God by his blood. So no longer in the family of Adam. Praise the Lord. Um, yeah, we're still human beings. We're still sinners. But we have now been transferred into his family. He's redeemed us to God by his blood. And we can never be kicked out of the family. What wonderful news is this. Our Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What a delight it is to have Jesus. Finally, we come to Bathsheba. She is not specifically named in this uh, genealogy, but um, it says, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And so here is another Gentile woman who had an adulterous relationship with David, and yet she is found in the line of Christ. Apart from Ruth, but Ruth was excluded as a Moabite, apart from Ruth, the others, you know, their sin is quite obvious. Um, and for most of us, our sin is quite obvious too. And uh, if for Gentiles, we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. But the Lord Jesus Christ changed it all at the cross. And there is no longer Jew and Gentile, slave and free poor and rich, and all these differentials that we have between people. We are all one in Christ. And so here, Bathsheba, uh, she's a Gentile. Her husband was known, and again, it's interesting that his name is often linked to who he is. Uriah the Hittite. What's a Hittite? It's a Gentile. <laughs> so this Gentile was married to a Gentile wife, and her name was Bathsheba. We see the grace of God in this whole history of these four women. The grace of God, that, that God would save sinners and include them in the line of the, the Messiah is wonderful. They were Gentiles outside of the normal blessing of God. And yet, we see that in the promise uh, that God made to Abraham, it says, and in your seed, all nations shall be blessed. And so God was giving even Abraham a clue at that time, although I think it was quickly forgotten as the Old Testament runs along, that Gentiles were the excluded ones. And yet there are clues all through the Old Testament that God is going to save not only the Jews, but he is going to save Gentiles as well. And then bring us into one new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And she, this uh, um, these, these four women are wonderful examples. And it, it, to me, it's an interesting thing, too, to see these four women mentioned. Um, rather than there being men in the genealogy to represent the Gentile nations, God chose women. 
And God uh, chose these four women who were, whose lives were marred with sin to show the riches of his grace. And what a wonderful testimony that even in the genealogy, we, we really kind of have the gospel. Because we have Tamar, only thing qualifying her was the fact that she was a sinner. We have Rahab, who by faith believed in God and he saved her. And, and we have Ruth, who was redeemed by uh, her kinsman redeemer. And we have Bathsheba, who is placed into the very line of the king uh, and, and basically... Um, the, the beauty of, it, uh, of the gospel is seen here. This morning I want to ask you, are you like Tamar, in need of a Savior? Well, the answer is this, Jesus is the Savior for you. Are you like Rahab, a sinner who has faith in God? Then God, who saved her, will also save you. Are you like Ruth? She was an outcast from another kingdom, but brought near uh, um, where she acknowledges God as her own, and God extends his loving arms uh, to her, but also he extends his loving arms to you, to receive you to himself by giving us our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or are you like Bathsheba who sinned, but obviously was forgiven, and perhaps became the picture of the virtuous woman in uh, Proverbs 31. There is some um, talk among Bible students that the virtuous woman was Solomon stating this about his own mother. And if that's true, his mother was Bathsheba. And so what a wonderful testimony it is that this woman who was um, unnamed here, but we know her as having committed adultery, God transformed this woman into a virtuous woman. And God is in the business of taking sinners and making them virtuous. In fact, it says in the scripture that he takes sinners and he makes them saints. Now, as I mentioned, there's one more woman in this genealogy, and that is Mary, but we run out of time and there's too many more names to quote here, so we'll take that one up next week. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for the lessons that you've given us in your word. We pray as we begin this study of Matthew that, Lord, you would really bring your words uh, to our hearts and, Lord, make them acceptable, make, make our worship and praise acceptable uh, in your sight, Lord Jesus. We pray that we might hear the words of our King, that we might follow in his footsteps and be more conformed to his image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.